Lord, we love you so much. Lord, we love you because you, you first loved us. That's what your word tells us. We, we love you because you first loved us. And Lord, for hearts who, who may feel saddened or discouraged, I pray that they might experience their theology, experience the reality behind those words. Lord, we, we think of our president, our vice president, our congressmen and women and senators and leaders, even Jerry Jr. and our other local leaders, and we pray that you would give them wisdom, Lord. They need wisdom, God. So I pray that you would give them wisdom. For our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, those who are in harm's way, we pray for their safety, we pray for their protection, and more importantly, we pray for their salvation. For our enemies, we pray that you would confuse and frustrate their evil, wicked plans, and then we pray that you'd save them too, God. Lord, we think of the persecuted church, Hebrews tells us to remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them. And so, Lord, we're thinking of Pastor Brian, who's being held in India right now because he's a Christian. We're thinking of Pastor Yusuf, who is being held in an Iranian prison because he's a Christian. I'm thinking of Leah Sherabu, this teenage girl, being held now over a year by Boko Haram in Nigeria because she's a Christian. Pastor Wang, Pastor John in China, Lord, and the Christians throughout the world who are being persecuted from North Korea to Albania and everywhere else in between. God, help them. Help them, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us today. I pray that we'd hear from you. I pray that hearts would be encouraged. I pray that hearts would be convicted. I pray that our lives would be brought under greater authority to your word and that we would grow and be more like you, Jesus. And so today, God, keep me from error. Keep me from from saying something today that I shouldn't say. And Lord, if there's there's a word that you want to give to me for, for the people listening today that I haven't even maybe thought about, then give me such a word, Lord. Help me to carefully handle your word. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So today is a, one of those rare days in which I preach a topical sermon. I know. Uh, we just, and if you guys are new here, we just finished a nine-week series through the book of Esther. And all those you can listen online, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, whatever, um, I preach like almost no topical sermons. So um, this week, and I'll tell you right now, next week, I'm going to be preaching topical sermons. doesn't happen often. Um, next week, you'll definitely want to be here. All I'll say is this. Um, I am unable to preach next week's sermon by myself. So uh, that's uh, all I'll say. Next week is a whole, whole lot of fun to preach uh, the sermon I'm going to preach. Some of you guys are familiar. I preach it every year, usually. Um, so, and then two weeks from now, we will start a new book series. 
We'll be back in the New Testament after going through three Old Testament books, Joshua, Judges, and Esther. We're going to be back in the New Testament. But today I want to preach a sermon on a topic that I think is very relevant for us, and that is the church. That's what today's sermon is about, the church. And I think it's very timely, because I I believe we live in a day in which increasingly so, many people look at the church through this almost consumeristic lens in which the vital questions we ask often turn to, well, what can the church do for me? What what can it do for me? And then the second that the benefits begin to run dry, we peace out. We we just bounce. And I, I realize for many of us, including myself, I was really never taught very well about this thing we call the church. It's only been over the past few years that I've actually started to think and to raise questions as it pertains to the Bible. And I think one of the most common questions when we think about the church, common questions or objections is, well, isn't that thing called the church just a man-made thing? Hey, people say that, right? It's just a man-made thing. Uh, Let me clarify before we go any further this afternoon. Um, No. Jesus, he founded the church. Not me, not Paul. Jesus founded the church. And this isn't a man-made idea. It's not a man-made thing. Churches were not created by preachers looking for jobs. They were created by Jesus. He says in Matthew 16, 18, You are Peter, and upon this rock I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so... When it comes to our understanding of the church, the question of church membership naturally follows at some point. And one will ask, well, is church membership even a necessary thing? Is it? And to that, I'll just be upfront with you right now that membership at a local church is not biblically commanded. You will find no Bible verse that says, thou shalt be a member of a local church. It's just not there. And for many people, they're like, that seals the deal, Joe. Great sermon. Let's go to Love Feast now. We can just transition on out of here. And I would also point out to you, we also don't see the term Trinity anywhere in Scripture. And yet, both Protestants and Catholics believe in the triune God. And... You need to understand this. While church membership is not biblically commanded anywhere in Scripture, it is biblically implied and understood. And the reason, the reason I'm bringing this up at, at this time is because I believe one of the best ways to fight against selfishness, one of the best ways to fight against selfishness, and one of the best ways to fight against this consumeristic Christianity in which, and I kid you not, I remember it was like two years ago, I'm outside greeting people, talking to them. Girl walks up, she's like, do you guys have decaf coffee? And I was like, we don't have any coffee. I just rolled her eyes back in her head, walked in. I never saw her again after that, but that's the kind of mentality I'm talking about. What can the church do for me, Right? And the second, that it no longer can meet my needs, right? That I'm not getting poured into, or that I'm not feeling that, man, that that level of high that I once felt, right? 
Man, the sermons are just not that good anymore. The small groups, man, I don't know. It's lost that, that, that specialness. Or Man, the first couple weeks I was here, the music was great. but It's kind of been downright. Then I'm out of here. And I think the best way that we can fight against consumeristic Christianity is for us to better understand what it actually means to be the church. And so, one of the first places I want us to go to, and we read it this afternoon, is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Because the question comes up is, well, where does that word member even come from? For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So here's the imagery. Paul wants to elicit this illustration for you, a human body. I think we all can relate to that. We, we have one. And so a human body. It has different members, right? Members, hands, arms, legs, feet. All different, but all one. And he says, so it is with Christ. That means, for Paul, what he is saying is, it means to be a member is to be a hand, an arm, a foot, an eye. It is to be a part of something. And that's really the biblical basis for using the word. And so, the question that the imagery here in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 raises for us in the local church is, who? If you're taking notes, this is going to be a really important question we're going to come back to many times. Just who? Who? Who is it that intends to be treated as a foot? Who is intends to be treated as an arm, an eye? Who? David Platt would say on this point that there are no New Testament believers who are not associated with a local gathering of specific believers. I'll say it again for emphasis. Think it through, right? There's no New Testament believers here in our Bibles who are not associated with a local gathering of specific believers. Now today, it's just the opposite, right? You have conversations with people? Oh, you go to church? Ah, I'm checking out this one. How long have you been there for? Ah, a couple weeks. I got bored of that one. Then I went to this one, right? And we just kind of bounce around to all these other places, right? You tell that story to the New Testament Christians, they'd be like, I'm confused, you need to start over. I don't understand that. And I'm thinking at that point, either we're doing something wrong, or they're doing something wrong. I'm kind of going to lean toward we're doing something wrong, if that's, if that's our thinking about the church. And so when it comes to the church, the big question that we have to ask is what actually constitutes a church? And it's at this point in which many will respond and say, well, Joe, the church, the church is the people, not the building. I, I'm sure some of you may be already thinking that. And that's not a wrong answer. It's just also not an adequate answer. It's, it's an incomplete answer to say, oh, the church is just the people, not the building. Not, not wrong, just inadequate. It'd be like saying, okay, well, what's a car? And you're like, something that has four wheels. <sighs> okay, is that it? Right? Well, you're like, well, no, but that's the whole point, right? Yes, it has four wheels, but like, so does a wagon, right? Or like, what's a house? Four walls and a roof. Okay, yeah, technically, but there's, there's more to it than just that. So I realize that one of the reasons that we don't feel the necessity to ask such questions, we don't feel the necessity in 2020 
of church covenant or church membership is because we take the existence of the local church for granted. And it's easy to do because well, there's so many of them from coast to coast. So I'm, I'm with you so far. It can be easy to take it for granted. And so we don't, we don't often ask the question, well, what constitutes the visible local body of believers as a church? But if you put yourself back in early 1600s America, whoa, this was a real burning question. This was, this was a huge deal that people wrestled with. And the answer that was given over and over again as to what actually makes a group of people, or persons, a church, was a covenant. A covenant, a commitment, a, a solemn pledge, a promise to one another that we're going to believe in Jesus Christ, we're going to worship Jesus Christ, and love Him and serve one another. That's it. You imagine, right? It's 1649. You're in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Any people from Mass here today with us? Just the one. I got gotcha. you. 1649. You're in Cambridge, Massachusetts. You're sitting around with John Cotton, Richard Mather, and Ralph Partridge, and you're thinking through the very things that we're talking about right now. And the understanding for these men is that God wills for His people to gather in visible local churches. Visible, I think really that's the point of emphasis, right? And this is clear from the New Testament. For example, from the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, they're all very different in Revelation 2 and 3. And so they emphasize this, this visible part, right? The visible local church. Because the visible local church is an expression of the global church. We can say, well, for all of us united together in Christ, we're part of the church. Okay? Across borders, across languages, that's true, right? We're all a part of the global church for those who have the common faith in Christ. But the visible church, right, is the expression of the global church. Why do you think that matters, right? So other people can see. So they can see, right? They can't see the global church. They can see these local, like, bursts, these expressions of this one global church. And so once they got to that point, those three guys, they, they realized, okay, well then how do we set that up? How, how do we define that? How do we establish that? And no doubt, someone suggested, well, how about our faith? Our faith in Christ. But the problem is, and, and faith in Christ is, is a great thing. Faith's invisible. You can't see it. And, and you're like, okay, and getting back to the whole point, if the local church is supposed to be a visible expression of the global church for the world to see, and you can't see faith because faith's invisible, we can't use that to establish it. So they thought, okay, well, what about, I got it, what about a profession of faith? Right? You can hear that. You could hear a profession of faith, right? That Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect, sinless life. Died on the cross. Was buried. Rose from the grave. Conquering sin. Conquering death. That salvation is a free gift of God. By grace alone. Through faith alone. In the person of Jesus Christ alone. And the true faith always involves repentance. A turning from our sin. A hatred for the things that God hates. And a love for the things that God loves. A, a growing in holiness and desire to be like Jesus Christ. That's great. And I hope each and every one of you 
can give a profession of faith that encompasses his life, death, burial, and resurrection. His life, death, burial, and resurrection. But you say, well, could you use that? And these men reason, no, because as good as having a profession of faith is, it doesn't make you part of one particular church or another. If you met me on the street, right, and you heard me give that profession of faith, you'd be like, mm, come on, right? Maybe some of you, I don't know. But, but you still wouldn't know. You'd be like, all right, well, I know this guy, based on his profession of faith, he seems to be a Christian, but what church is he a part of, right? Imagine, you didn't know me, right? What church? Am, am, I, am I a member at TRBC? Of course, you know, like, I'm one of the pastors here at, at Lynchburg City, but you wouldn't know that, right? So, no, faith's invisible. A bare profession of faith, it doesn't make you a member at one particular church or another. And so they said, okay, well, what about cohabitation? And by cohabitation, I mean living in the same community. And I think this was really, really helpful when thinking through this because I think this is usually the answer that most of us in 2020 give. And, and this is what I mean by this. I am talking to someone and I will often have the conversation, you guys probably heard me before, like, oh, do you go to church anywhere? And they say, oh, I go to such and such a church. And then I follow up with, do you go? Or are you a part of? Right? Because the nature of that next question then clarifies the first question, right? And at which point someone's usually like, oh, well, I just kind of go, right? Like, you know, when it works my schedule or I, you know, want to. And then sometimes I go here or sometimes I go here. And so I'm having this conversation with one of my old college buddies, Brian, few years ago. And I said, Brian, do you go to church anywhere? And he's like, oh, I'm a member at this church. I didn't even get to the second part, right, where I like to ask my, oh, are you a member? You, you, you go or are you part of? And he says, oh, I'm a member here. And I said, oh, well, what was the membership process like? And he said, uh, well, I, I just consider myself a member. And I said, oh, why is that? And he said, well, because I, I go regularly, which is a good thing, right? We know Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Right? Many of these early Christians neglected to meet together, as is the habit of some. So it's a good thing right? that Brian was going. He said, I go regularly and I give money. It's also good to give money. right? It's an act of faith, an act of worship to God. We know God loves a cheerful giver who gives from the heart. It's one of the ways we pay to turn the lights on in the building. Good things. But does that make someone a member? So you're there, right? 1649, you're there in Cambridge, Mass., with Cotton, Mather, and Partridge, and they said, no. No, you can't use living together in community as a basis for being a part of the church. And the reason is, it's because both non-Christians and Christians dwell together. Think about that, right? You're sitting in here right now, for all you know, there are non-Christians in here. Maybe there are non-Christians who've been coming regularly. There are non-Christians who give money. There was a sermon I preached on giving two, three years ago. One of the guys, his, his mom, who was a Buddhist, came to the service. He was like, Joe, my mom, she put money in the offering plate. I was like, wow, okay. He's like, what do you think that means? I'm like, I don't know. But I know what it definitely doesn't mean. It definitely doesn't mean that she's a member of the church because you give money or you regularly come. Because non-Christians do that as well. On that point of trying to establish and define what the church is, neither is baptism, because baptism by itself doesn't make a person a part of one particular church or another particular church. 
And what they came and what they reasoned is what actually establishes the visible union of a group of believers into a church is that they make a covenant with each other to be the church. They make a commitment. They make a promise. They say, we're going to be the church. We're going to love and serve and honor and worship Jesus and we're going to love each other. And this becomes more and more relevant today because we live in this age of non-committal. We do. We do. No one wants to commit to anything. Right? You know how it is, right? Hey, do you want to come over? Eh. Yes, as long as I don't get a better offer between now and when I'm supposed to come over, right? We, we don't want to commit to anything at all. There's a guy a year ago. I remember, I said, hey, have you ever thought about joining the church? He's like, well, I already consider myself a member. I'm like, oh, well, do you want to make it public? For everybody else to know that too? No, 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 I'm good with just me knowing. Um, I said, well, that kind of defeats the whole point. You see, it's visible. It's not secret. It can't be you're the only person who knows about it. Like, good grief, that doesn't even work in having a girlfriend. Like, why should it work in church membership? You know, right? Hey, man, you got a girlfriend? Yeah, yeah, that one. Does she know that? I'm working on that. Like, if it doesn't work in a relationship, why do you think it works in like church membership? So what all, what this is all about is the church being a visible people for God, for himself, in fulfillment of the new covenant promises. And it's rooted secondarily in the biblical necessity of becoming these local expressions of that one global covenant people. The local church is a visible expression of the global church from coast to coast, from language to language. And no doubt, I imagine there's at least one person who's saying, all right, Joe, I hear you, but is it really that significant? Let's say what you're saying is true. Is it significant? Does it matter? And I'll play devil's advocate for for a second, right? I'm going to argue it's not that significant. And I'm going to argue this because I'd say, Joe, I'm here this afternoon, 9 February 2020. But you know what? Depending on how you end this, I might not be here next week. I just go to somewhere else. So I can go to your worship service at Lynchburg City Church. And if I choose to, I can go somewhere else next week. So then how significant is it really anyways if I can go to the, come and go to the worship service as I like? Furthermore, you talk about small groups all the time. Which is true. Because they're awesome. And you should go Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday. You should go to small group. They're great. Okay? That's where you're going to find community. But you say, all right, Joe. I can go to small group and not be a member of the church. Therefore, how significant is it? Or you say, you got love feast after the service. McAllister's sounding pretty good right now. I don't have to be a member, and I can go to love feast. Therefore, how significant is it? Or if I'm sick and I go to the hospital, someone may come and visit me. Or I might get a text message if I haven't been around, and someone might say, dude, I missed you, man. How's your week? I don't have to be a member. So if I can do all those things, does it really matter? Is it really that significant? How serious, therefore, is it to say to another person, you're not permitted to be a member here? And my answer is, I think it's very serious. 
I think it's really serious. I said at the beginning of the sermon, there is nowhere in the Bible in which church membership is biblically commanded, right? There's no Bible verse that says, thou shalt be a member of a local church. But I did say, if you remember, it is implied and understood. It is implied and understood. Membership is implied and understood in the way the church is supposed to discipline its members. Look at Matthew 18 with me for a second. If your brother sins against you, this is a great conflict resolution statement. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is great because that's one way to avoid gossip. Just boom, I'm going to tell him. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, usually, when we do Matthew 18, we usually do verse 15. And if we need to, we do verse 16. But we usually never do verse 17. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so here in Matthew 18, we see the church appearing to be the final kind of court of appeals in matters of church discipline. But the question is, if there's no church membership, how can you define the group that you're supposed to bring the issue to? Right? Verse 17. He says, go and tell it to the church. Which one? I don't know. Like, like who? Who do, I, who do I bring this to, right? Uh, anyone who maybe walks in off the street who might be brand new today? Do we count them? Like, who? You scratch your heads, right? If you're in a situation and you're like, okay, I've done verse uh, 15, I've done verse 16, now I'm going to do verse 17, go and tell it to the church. Thomas wrote, should I tell it to them? Well, I was going there for a few weeks, but then I was going to this other church for a few weeks. And I don't know. Who? I said, who's a very important question today? Who do I tell it to? See, we don't, we, we don't know this, right? So when, we, when Jesus says, tell it to the church, they knew who they were talking about. But this is the problem. See, when we take the local church for granted, when we view the church through this consumeristic lens that it's all about me, it's all about what can the church do for me? We don't know how to answer the question here because, because we can't answer it. We don't know how to answer it because we, we can't answer it. Furthermore, church membership is implied by the fact that excommunication even exists. And you say, well, that's one of those fancy Catholic words, right? <laughs> Probably, but it's rooted in biblical principles, I promise you, okay? No heresy today here. So I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 12 and 13, right? It says this, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge, right? Inside the church, you're supposed to judge them, right? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. A little background here, right? So church in Corinth, uh, Paul finds out some pretty crazy stuff that there's actually a guy at the church in Corinth who's having sex with his stepmom, and he's like, I'm sorry, what? Like, I mean, it's Corinth, right? I mean, this is like Amsterdam, this is like Vegas, but it's like, really? That's going on? Like, I mean, that's, I mean, even for the Corinthians, who are like really permissible, they're just like, 
yikes, that's weird, right? I mean, for, that's kind of what, when you read the rest, Paul's like, yeah, even for them, this is like kind of taboo. But apparently everybody knows about it, right? Dude, in the church, having sex with his stepmom, it's all good. Paul's like, no, it's not. It's not all good at all. This is terrible. And so he says, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Such a formal removal of a person would not be possible if there was not a clear and defined understanding of who was and wasn't in the church. I mean, imagine you're here, right? And you're visiting for the very first time. Maybe some of you are, right? And I said, hey, I'm sorry to tell you this, but taking a vote or removing you from the church, you'd probably look at me kind of incredulously and be like, what? Like, I'm a visitor here. Like, or I've only been coming for a few weeks. You can't do that. And I think you'd probably have every right to respond that way. I think it'd be a very honest response. But that's the point. When we started Lynchburg City Church, I did not believe in church membership. Okay? And then I had conversations with my good, dear friend, Josh Tancordo. Josh, if you're listening, shout out to you. He's probably not listening. He's a, he's a pastor in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But he, he, he brought up church membership. I'm like, yeah, we're not doing that. He's like, all right, then here's my question. Matthew 18, how do you do that? If you don't define who's in the church versus who's out of the church. And if you guys know me, I usually have an opinion for most things. <laughs> I had no answer for him. He said, look at 1 Corinthians 5. How do you do this? How do you exercise church discipline here? If it's not defined who's outside the church versus inside the church. Notice, they don't say in this passage, um, well, we actually don't know who's in and who's out. Can you clarify this? Like, they, they knew it was understood and implied. And so when Josh asked me this, I said, honestly, I said, I have no idea. I said, I, I don't have an answer. I don't know what, I don't know what you do. If you, if you do not define who is a part of the church, right? Go back to 1 Corinthians 12, 12, right? Right? Hands, arms, different members of one body, so it is with Christ. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you do these sorts of text. And so when we think about church membership, it's looking at a particular group of Christians and saying, I want you. I want you, and I want you, and I want you. I want you to have a higher expectation of me. And if I do waver in my faith, you can exercise church discipline against me. And when I say church discipline, I'm going to clarify because sometimes we get this confused. And I think one of the reasons we get it confused is because most churches, they don't do church discipline, right? Because, well, they give a lot of, that family gives a lot of money to the church, so we're just going to ignore that. Or that, that man, that family, oh, he loves playing hockey with, uh, with Joe, so yeah, they're not going to, that's just going to get brushed under the rug. Like, some of you come from churches where, like, abuses happen, and it just gets swept under the rug because that's just easier, and it's way less awkward that way. Difference between discipline and church discipline, right? Uh, I'll, I'll, he uses the example of sexual immorality. I'll use the example of sexual immorality. Got a guy having sex with his girlfriend, right? Find out about it, comes to light. He's, he's, he's just immediate response, just broken and grieved over his sin. He knows it's wrong. He's battling with it. He, he's seeking really to try to do the right thing, implementing boundaries, implementing like uh, accountability, methodology. 
We might, we might exercise discipline, right? I know you're struggling. I'm here. I'm going to walk through this difficult time with you, right? But there might be some discipline that takes place, right? Whatever that might be, right? Whether, you know, I, I might not have you lead maybe a small group anymore or whatever it is. If he, if that, he or she is in a leadership position, unrepentant sin would be over here, right? It's also a true story. Guy comes to me. He's like, Joe, here's the thing. I know what you're going to say, but me and my girlfriend, we're having sex. There it is. It's just there. And you know what? Like, I'm okay with that because I've worked this out with God and he understands and I think we've got an understanding and so she's going to be moving in with me and that's just how it's going to be. And so I know how you feel. We're going to have to agree to disagree, right? Discipline. Church discipline, right? Go and tell your brother, hey man, you can't do this, right? Doesn't listen. You go get someone else. Brother, you can't do this, right? Still doesn't listen. You go to the church, right? Dude, what are you doing? You can't do this because if you keep doing this, man, you're going to go to hell. You're going to go to hell if you keep down this road. I've had those conversations. They are awkward and unpleasant. But I tell you, that is the true kindness. Because most churches, they don't do church discipline. They just ignore whatever the issue is. And ignoring it, they essentially hold the person's hand, like this dude here, and literally walk them down the gates of hell and hand them over to Satan himself. That... That's the real evil that happens in many churches. They just rather ignore the issue, sweep it under. Oh, I can't talk to him. I can't talk to her. Right? It's gonna be too awkward, right? That's what we're talking about here. Like we're talking about saying to our brothers and sisters, "I want you to have a higher expectation of me because if I waver in my faith, you can exercise this against me, right? And send me the serious." and necessary wake-up call by putting me out of the church because it would be a whole lot better to experience that at the hands of people that I've committed myself to and who in return have committed themselves to me than for people to ignore what I'm doing and by virtue let me go to hell because, oh, it's just too awkward. Yes, too many churches today ignore these types of things. Which is why when Josh Tancordo presented this, these ideas to me a couple of years ago, I realized it was a problem that I could not give him a response of how our church would do, Matthew 18, of how our church would do 1 Corinthians 5. I didn't have an answer. And I knew I wasn't going to have an answer. Furthermore, membership is implied in the biblical instruction for believers to submit to their leaders and their pastors. Look at Hebrews 13.7, for example. It says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, those who preached to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. There is an implication in Hebrews 13.7 that there is some relationship that is definable. Remember your leaders. They didn't say, uh, Who? Which ones? Because I was at Thomas Road the last three weeks, so it, is it them? Uh, you see what I'm saying? So I said it is implied and understood. No, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. Not because they're perfect. I'll tell you right now, pastors are not perfect. And the sooner you start to realize that, the better. 
I think sometimes because we normally view pastors as that guy who I see once a week for like an hour preaching a sermon, and that's it. We, we put them in this unhealthy-like pedestal. Right? Pastors, they need the grace of God. Pastors need forgiveness. Pastors make mistakes, say things they shouldn't, and on and on and on. I'll give you a long list, right? It's understood and definable. They wouldn't have said, oh, who are you talking about there? When you look at Hebrews 13, 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That is a truly terrifying thing. They will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. In other words, don't be that guy, don't be that girl, right, who's responsible for like 90% of the drama and issues in the church. For that would be of no advantage to you, Joe paraphrase. That's a command, guys. Hebrews 13, 17. That's a command for Christians in the Bible. Leaders will have to give an account for those whom they lead. So as a pastor, who do I give an account for? Who do I give an account for? Am I responsible for every single Christian on the planet? You'd say, no, of course not. Okay. Who do I give an account for? No, I, I'm, I'm responsible for the church that I pastor at, so followers of Christ are commanded to obey their leaders. Okay. Who? Which ones? Which, which, which ones? That's, that's the question, right? Every single like pastor and leader? No, because I think we'd all say there are some people who call themselves pastors who shouldn't have a following at all because of the things coming out of their mouth. You are not supposed to just obey any Christian leader, and I'm not supposed to be accountable for every single person in the body, thus implying some specific identifiable gathering of the local church. Or my man John Piper says it this way. In commenting on this Hebrews 13, 17, your job is submission. The leader's and pastor's job is to go before the judge of the universe and tell him that we loved and served you well. And your job is to receive that love and that service and, and respond positively. That's what Hebrews 13, 17 is saying. I know some of you struggle with this, right? Because of sometimes pride or other things in your life. You're like, I don't, I don't want to ask for help, which is why one of my favorite questions I like to ask people is, how are you doing this week? I'm doing fine, because that's what people normally say. And then I usually say, would you tell me if you weren't? You want to know why I asked that? Would you tell me if you weren't? Because it's a scary thing to know that I have to give an account to the king of the universe one day. So do your pastors and leaders a, a favor and, and don't get in their way. Let them love you. Let them serve you. Let them care for you. It's pride that sometimes says, ah, oh, I'm fine. You look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So how exactly does this work? We, we're supposed to esteem them? Which ones? The ones that... TRBC? 
the ones at Lynchburg City Church, like, how do you obey this if you haven't defined who's a part of the church versus who's just a regular visitor? And the, the only way that uh, I know how to move forward and, and, do, and do these verses is to visibly define the church. And I don't care whether you call it membership or, or covenant, but it's impossible for you and me to do our jobs, as we've seen from these different passages, without the church of God being visibly defined. So I'll just tell you right now, each of us should be a member of a local church. And with that comes a certain responsibility, especially for those who do not repent, as we saw in the example of the dude sleeping with his stepmom in 1 Corinthians 5, right? And so people will no doubt ask me, okay, I've heard you, I'm good, so tell me this. What's in it for me, right? Where's the benefit? Where's the benefit of being a member? It's always interesting to hear this question. There, there are benefits, but it's always interesting to hear this question because I think sometimes it, it just reflects this selfish, consumeristic mindset that has created many of the problems within the local church today. What, what I'm saying is this. like We ought to declare ourselves as part of the body so that if, we were, if we're ever wayward, if we're ever, we just go rogue, we put ourselves in a position to be put out of the church and I know that a lot of people will say at this point, okay, yeah, I don't want to sign up for that. Like, like, why would I want to sign up for something that could result in me being removed? And that's, that's a good question. And I would argue that the answer to that question lies within the question itself. You say what? <laughs> okay, I'll say it again. People, no doubt, will say, why would I want to sign up for something that if by signing up and committing myself to, it could result in me being removed. And this is usually the same person, right, who argues against the significance of this. The, the same person who says, while these things may be true, Joe, they aren't significant. They lose their argument at this point. Because this means to be in this, to be a part of the local church, really does mean something. It actually matters. Because if it didn't matter... If it, if it wasn't really that significant, why would you care if you were removed in the first place? All these aspects are rooted in the truth that the local church is a visible expression of the universal church. The body of Christ universally is expressed in the body of Christ locally. To belong to the body of Christ in the New Testament means to belong to a body of Christ. And I'll tell you this, it's really threatening for a lot of Lone Ranger Christians. The things I'm saying, some of these things are very threatening for Lone Ranger Christians who love to cruise and church hop from week to week. And I say that as a former Lone Ranger church hopping Christian. Because you don't want to be held accountable. You want to just do what you want to do. You never really want to be asked the hard questions. And friends, I'll tell you right now, better are wounds from a friend than kisses from an enemy. And a lot of you don't like that. 
You don't want to be asked those hard questions. You don't want to be challenged. You don't want to be called out. You don't want to be motivated. You just want to cruise in your Disneyland version of Christianity, and you want to be able to check the box, say, okay, I'm good, then maybe call or text mom or dad, tell them you went to church in air quotes, and then post some clever cliche on social media than actually be a part of the people of God. And to that point, that I'd say that those desires have more in common with just spirituality than they actually do with the biblical principles that are found in the Bible. Now understand that that being a part of the church, committed to the church, membership in the church, covenant in the church, commitment to the people of God, Guys, that, someone paid a very expensive price for that. It was bought with blood. It's not a, a, a cheap gift. It's a really expensive gift. It's a sweet gift. And, and so here is the answer to the question. You ready? This is it, right? Here's the answer to the question. The problem of the consumeristic, selfish Christian who treats church from the perspective of what can you do for me? I started the sermon off saying this, right? What's the answer? I think the answer is the nature of love. Have you not heard? First John 3.18, little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's great to talk a good game. It's another thing to actually do it. You can say you love Jesus all day long. You can even say that you love the church all day long. But to love the church is to be a part of the church. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John 4, 21. Um, You can't love your brother well without the commitment of being a part of the church. You can't. You say, ah, Joe, you're so wrong here. Oh, oh, no, no, I'm not. You, you can't truly love your brother well in a 1 John 4.21 way without being a part of and committed to the church. I mean, just imagine, right? Some of you guys know my wife, Diana. Imagine if I said, hey, I love Diana, uh, but I'm not going to commit to her, right? This thing right here, right? You see that ring? Don't need that. I love her. You'd be like, uh, come again? You know, you'd say that, right? You'd have every reason to say that. You say you love Diana, then why are you making a commitment to her? It's no different with the church. Like, I know a lot of people who, and I, I know, guys, I, I've, I've done the church hopping Lone Ranger Christian thing, so I, I'm trying to think of this, right, from like what you need to hear and also to like where I was like 10 years ago in my own faith. And I know a lot of people struggle at this point, and they'll say, well, it's just inconvenient, or it's even scary. It can be scary. I'll just be honest, right? Commitment can be scary. Or they say it can be a burden, or feel like a burden. And I would remind you, if that's how you feel, I'd remind you of 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome, right? His instruction to us, it's not burdensome. You feel like it's a burden? Yeah, I said, maybe that's the devil, right? Just lying to you. Spiritual warfare taking place in your life? 
And the reason it's not burdensome is this. I, I hear Mark Dever tell this story. Mark's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in the D.C. area. And when Mark lived in England, he had a friend who would always come to the same church that he was at, but his friend would skip the first part. He'd only come to hear the sermon. And one day Mark asked his friend, why do you blow off the beginning of the, the service? And his friend said, oh, well, I just don't get that much out of it. Okay. And so Mark said, have you ever thought about joining the church? And his friend was like, I'm sorry, say what? Join the church? You'd be kidding me. Like, Mark, why would I join the church? I know what I'm here to do. I'm here to evangelize. I'm here to make disciples. Like, if I join the church, all those people, no doubt, would slow me down. Mark said, you know, they might. That's a possibility. But maybe, maybe you just might help to speed them up. If you are a Christian, you will inconvenience yourself to love others and to commit to others. And and that's what we're talking about here, right? And the beautiful thing about church membership, it gives that committed love a shape. Like a shape and a form to do that. And I'd tell you, right, you're like struggling right now with what I'm saying maybe, I'd say, don't, don't miss out on the blessing because it really is a blessing. I'd say don't cut yourself off from this. Find a church, right? If, love it for be here, but if it's not here, find some church to commit to, to be a part of. Because at the end of the day, this type of commitment, this church membership, it's rooted in the way that God relates to us. Think about how God relates to you, right? He relates to you with a committed love. He makes covenants with us, promises to us, and therefore it is highly appropriate for believers to express their love for each other in covenant. Because after all, it is impossible to truly love one another as a church on the level that God calls us to without being willing to make some form of commitment. And so that's the question I pose to you today. Are you... Are you an accountable member of a local church? Like, I'm not here to ask if you're a regular visitor or if you even consider yourself a member. Like, who is your life committed and accountable to? Because if you can't answer this question, you're living contrary to the pattern of the New Testament. It is, it's not for us to, to to church hop and, and, you know, go there this week and go there that week or whenever it suits us or conv- is convenient for us, right? This, this should be a priority for you as a Christian. You can call it membership, you can call it commitment, you can call it covenant, you can call it whatever you want, but it's about making that, that commitment to a group of people. And I realize some of you are so terrified to make those type of commitments to a church, let alone to another person. And at the end of the day, what we're talking about, it's a commitment to holy love, like the kind of love that the Father has committed to showing us when he sent his son Jesus to come and die. Man, I'm glad that was a committed love, right? I'm glad Jesus wasn't like in the garden, like, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to hard pass on this, right? That's what we're talking about, right? How do you deal with this consumeristic, like, Christianity? It's all about me? I think it's an understanding how God relates to us, how God loves us. And I'm thankful for his love. 
I'm really thankful. Because even in those moments where uh, like my commitment wavers, right? There he is, right? Constant. So as the team comes, I want to just pray for us for a moment. I want to pray for us. Lord, we love you and we thank you, God, that you do not love us with a fickle love and a fickle, indecisive love. And I pray that we would see the local church the way that you see us. Because you, you founded the church, so Lord, help us to, to see our brothers and sisters the way you see us in this committed fashion. For better or for worse. Right? Lord, I pray for those Lone Ranger Christians in here. I pray, Lord, that they would really wrestle with the text that we dealt with, just as I had to wrestle with them a few years ago. And I pray, Lord, that all of us would, that our lives might come under greater, greater conformity to your word. We love you, Jesus. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. We're going to take communion here now. And um, we do it a little bit differently. You do not have to be a member to take communion, but you do have to be a Christian to take communion. You do have to have placed your faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and have repented of your sin. And I would tell you, if you're not a Christian, I would tell you not to take it. I'd tell you, if you're not a Christian, now's the time. Bow the knee to King Jesus. Repent of your sins and follow him. That's what I would tell you. But I'd also remind you of Paul's words to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. Many of the Corinthians, when they were taking communion, did so in an unworthy manner, and as a result, God killed some of them. Very serious thing what we do when we take communion. So if there is unrepentant sin in your life, deal with it now. You need to sit here. You need to have a conversation with the Lord First, you do that. And, and when you're ready, you come. When, when you're ready, come to the back, and we'll serve you the bread and the juice and take communion with you.